0: During Donald Trump's presidential campaign, he was asked how he would run his administration with regard to staff. What would be his criteria in choosing individuals to join him in office? The answer started this way. He said, track record, great competence, love of what they're doing, references. We have to get the best people, and if we don't, we'll be in trouble. And he would echo that statement many times on the campaign trail. And now several years down the line, critics of the president often use his answer, changing it a little bit, saying that he said, I only hire the best people, and they poke fun at him due to not only the high turnover rate in the administration, but also the often public disagreements that spill onto Twitter between them. Now, in the end, in many cases, it seems that competence and references weren't quite enough to keep the job that was offered to some of these individuals. And that's not meant to be a political statement. It's just an observation. These jobs, of course, demand incredible amounts of sustained intensity from people. The pressure is extreme, undoubtedly takes a toll no matter how competent a person is or how much they love the work. That's just a reality of positions like that. In the opening of Acts 16, Paul is on what we call his second missionary journey, which he starts by going back through some of the towns that he had evangelized in his first missionary journey. And these were not easy places to go to. These were intense trips, dangerous trips. These were places where he had encountered deadly opposition. But Paul wasn't afraid, and this was the job. This was the job. There were other jobs that different Christians had, but this was his job. This was his calling, to be used by God to strengthen the churches. While revisiting the cities of Lystra and Derby, Paul is going to bring a young man named Timothy onto his team. And Timothy would become much more than an assistant or a bag carrier or a partner to Paul. He's going to become like a son to him. Later in life, he would say that there was no one in the world more like-minded with he, Paul, than Timothy, his dearly loved son in the faith. We are privileged to have some of their personal correspondence in the form of two epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Paul writing to this dearly loved son. We can understand why Paul had such an affection for Timothy. As we follow his story through the Bible, we find he's one of the most remarkable characters of the New Testament. He's a man of great faith, a man of great faithfulness, great endurance and humility and grace. He had a great track record, a great deal of competence, great references at the beginning, a love for the work and the people he'd encounter in it. And uh, in the end, though, he was able to hold on to his position and faithfully fight the good fight. But as we're introduced to him here, we're going to see something that, frankly, is a little bit surprising to us, especially if we've only read it for the first time. And now I'm guessing that almost all of us here are very familiar with this story. If you come across this story for the first time, and particularly if you were reading the book of Acts for the first time straight through, something surprising happens here. We're going to see Paul, Paul, the warrior of salvation by grace through faith and not of works. He's going to say to this young man, Timothy, I'd like you to come with me on this trip to preach the good news of grace. But first, I need you to become a little bit more Jewish than you are right now. I need you to go through the rite of circumcision, and once you've done that, we can go into the Gentile world and tell people they don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. What's happening here? What's going on? And more importantly, what does it mean for us as people who also want to be a part of God's team that goes into the world preaching the message of Jesus? It must mean something. It must be a reason why Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has recorded and preserved this for us that we might learn from the example. Let's explore the what and the why in these verses, starting in verse 1. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra. Hold there for just a moment, just to keep us all on the same page. It was in the city of Lystra where Paul had worked a miracle and then been mistaken for the god Hermes. And people came from some other towns where Paul had taught that you are justified by faith and not through the law of Moses. And they stoned Paul to death. It seems that one of the people who witnessed this happen was a young boy named Timothy. He and some of the other new believers there in Lystra gathered around Paul's body and saw God raise him back to life again. In later in Paul's writings to Timothy, he talks about how you are a witness to all of my sufferings in Lystra. That's why we know he was there. Verse 1 continues, there there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. It's hard to say how old Timothy is at this point. If we want to throw a dart at a board, we might say he's around 20 years old, maybe a little bit less. Uh, We know that 12 or so years after this point, Paul's going to write 1 Timothy to him. And even in that letter, he's going to refer to his youth. And he said, hey, don't let anybody think less of you because you're so young. And so kind of, you know, subtracting backwards and guessing Paul wasn't going to bring a 12-year-old boy, right, on a trip where they all might die. You know, Timothy is spoken of as a young man in, in this passage. And so maybe 18, maybe 20, maybe a little bit on either side of those. We're just not exactly sure. Now, we're given some family information here that Timothy's mother, her name is Eunice, she was a Jew who had been born again. In Second Timothy, we'll be told that Eunice's mother, Lois, was also a believer. They were a family with a sincere faith who searched the scriptures and taught Timothy to do the same. In fact, Paul describes him as having learned the scriptures from infancy. And what a great testimony. If you're a parent here uh, tonight uh, and you still have kids in the house, teach them the scriptures from as early of an age as you can. And maybe you weren't able to do that you know, at a certain point in their life. You know, or maybe you came to the Lord later or whatever your situation is. Uh, whatever point you're at, or if you young people who are going to be parents one day, teach your kids the Scriptures from the beginning. Now, whether Timothy's father was a Christian or what the Jews might call a God-fearer, we've talked about that term before, we don't know. We just know that he wasn't Jewish by nationality. He was a Gentile. He was a Greek. And while Timothy was raised in the Scriptures from a young age, he had not been raised as a Jewish child, at least as far as the rites and rituals go. Beyond this, we can only make guesses about Timothy's dad. There's nothing else given to us about him. Some paint him as a pagan. Others paint him as a proselyte. We don't know. It would just seem from the context of what we're going to read in a moment that he was at least in the general area, the district, a man of some sort of prominence because he was known throughout multiple cities. Verse 2, The brothers and sisters, that means Christians, at Lystra and Iconium, spoke highly of him. The hymn there is Timothy, not his dad. So Paul gets to town, and he's revisiting friends he made before, and they can't wait to talk to him about this young man, Uh, saying things maybe like, Do you remember that kid who was there when you were stoned? Man, has he turned out to be a fine young Christian. And really, this is more than just, Oh, he's a great kid. Christians from two churches in different towns are commending him to Paul for his faith and for his service. And they knew that Paul was in need of another team member. It's interesting, one of the commentators pointed out, uh, undoubtedly, as Paul was retracing his steps, uh, we looked at this last week, the falling out between Paul and Barnabas, but what would have been the first question? Hey, where's Barnabas? Well, this is Silas, and who knows how much they divulged or, or what, but it was clear that Paul, uh, you know, when he did this trip previously, he had a ministry partner, Barnabas. They went together, and then they set out with an assistant, a young man, uh, John also called Mark, and he had bailed on them. But as they went out, they, they liked to have someone who could help them with some of the you know, logistical things, carrying bags, all sorts of different things. Turns out when you're Paul and you might be dying or imprisoned one day or the next, you you need some help doing all of that stuff. And so, you know, he was there visiting and probably would have made it a point to say, Hey, you know, I'm I'm looking to pick up a third here. We're trying to make this thing a trio and the people in these two churches are saying, Oh, we know a guy. We've got a reference for this young man, Timothy. And so Really, really great. Christians from two churches in different towns are commending him to Paul. And when we compile all the little bits of things we know about Timothy from references to him in letters later in the New Testament, what we find is that not only was he a good, upstanding young man, that's great, he was a man of integrity, he could be trusted. But more than that, we find that prophecies had been given concerning him and his service to the Lord. We know that he would receive spiritual gifting through the laying on of Paul's hands. We know that he had great leadership skills that developed because he was able to step into difficult ministries in places like Corinth and the city of Ephesus and help guide the churches there in the truth. We know that he had a strong backbone. As a very young man, he could watch Paul be brutally murdered, but then when he was asked to go on the same trip with him, uh, go back out onto the field to some of those same places, he didn't flinch. He said, yeah, let's do it. He wasn't only well-respected in his little cul-de-sac, but already in multiple cities, and so pretty remarkable character. He was a shoe-in for Rookie of the Year, in other words, when it came to the spiritual draft. If you are looking for a starter, if you were looking for uh, a, an MVP, uh, a Heisman person, whatever sport you're into, that none of these sports exist anymore. In future generations, we'll have to explain what football and baseball were. But he was a shoe in for all of these things when it came to the spiritual draft. But, you know, looking at him, we never see him parading or indulging himself in selfish pursuits or trying to make a name for himself. Sadly, that can't be said about many prominent young uh, preachers and teachers in America today. And that's just a, a sad state of affairs. When you look at the wider church body, the wider American church culture, um, there's just a lot of parading a lot of swagger a lot of brand a lot of of just polish and package and and you know i just you know you see some of these things as they scroll across your feed on instagram and one of the things we always encourage people to say is, can you imagine, whether it's like some snippet of a sermon and people are carrying on and look a certain way and wearing certain things and all that kind of stuff, just, just do, can you imagine Jesus Christ doing what is happening in front of you, right, in the name of Jesus Christ, right? So, so you're scrolling through Facebook, you're scrolling through Instagram, and, and, and so often something pops up and it says, okay, here's someone, who has something to say in the name of jesus christ right okay well let's use our discerning and our thoughtful minds and the wisdom god has given us and just ask the simple question could i see jesus himself behaving this way looking this way saying what he's saying the way he's saying it or can i imagine paul the apostle or timothy or any of these guys behaving that way and in some cases yeah sure that's fine and in a lot of cases you'll think well yeah, no, I, <laughs> Paul the Apostle, yeah, he, he didn't act like that. And, and that is just a really simple litmus test to figure out if the person you're listening to is really following after the Savior the way that Paul followed after the Savior, right? So anyway, Timothy, he never was doing any of that kind of parading, never indulging himself. His faith was sincere. His desire was to glorify God with his life, not to glorify himself. And you know what? Paul noticed And more importantly, the Holy Spirit noticed. And God would do great things through this life. Maybe he thought he was uh, not set up for great things. He, you know, in that time, in that culture, on both sides, it was kind of a problem to be a child of mixed marriage. Your mom's a Jew, your dad's a Gentile. The Jews would have some problems with that. The Greeks would probably have some problems with that. You live in some nothing town out in Galatian region, right? And you're maybe thinking, you know, what am I ever going to do? Man, I saw this. I saw a real Christian come through one time, and he preached the gospel, and people killed him, and God raised him back to life, and now he's gone, and I'm stuck here in Lystra. I hang out in Derby, Right? And yet, God the Holy Spirit was noticing him all along, noticing his faithfulness and his humility, and he says, I'm going to do great things through this life. And I don't even just mean great in the human sense, that, well, well, yeah, yeah, he became the pastor of Ephesus, that's great. He's just do, he was already doing great things through Timothy, through these churches full of people whose names we don't know, right? In cities we don't know, cities that don't exist anymore, And God was doing great things. And so this is an encouragement to all of you younger listeners. You can glorify God in your youth. You can do so right now. You can serve God in your youth. We try to create space for that here at Calvary, and it, you know sometimes we could probably do a little more, or do a little bit better, but we believe that God can use young men and women the way he used Timothy. And not just Timothy, there's so many great stories in both Testaments of God using young people who have devoted their hearts to the Lord and saying, yeah, you don't have to be a certain age to be used by God. You don't have to be a certain popularity to be used by God. You don't have to be a certain polish to be used by God. He can use a little boy like Samuel who doesn't know anything. He can use a nobleman's son like Daniel. You can use, uh, pardon the phrase, you can use a, a, a half-breed guy like Timothy, right? That's what he would be considered in his day and age. And God says, yeah, I'm just looking for hearts, I'm just looking for hearts that are inclined to me. I can use a little, a little guy like David, a, a little ruddy boy, Who cares that he's not the tallest? Who cares that his family's not important? Who cares that his grandmother was like a Moabitess? Who cares about any of that? Look at his heart. Look at what he wants to do. Look at how he wants to serve God and glorify God. Look how he's willing to decrease so that God can increase. Yeah, let's use those people. And so if you're one of the younger listeners here tonight, that can be you as well. You can glorify God in your youth. And if you're just kind of here thinking that life feels like the same thing over and over, just going to school, doing your chores, same routine. Remind yourself of this truth that the Bible explains. You exist to glorify God and to be used by him for his eternal purposes. You don't need a certificate for, for that to start happening. You don't need to go through some kind of program for that to start happening. All you need to do is allow the Lord to rule over the throne of your heart and say, Lord, I'm willing, what do you want? and allow him to take your life and do something magnificent with it. And because that's true, because God is willing to use the old, the young, the noble, the not noble, people in Galatia, people in Jerusalem, people in Hanford, people in wherever, because all of these things are true, make your life ready the way Timothy did. And what did he do? It's not that he qualified himself, but He saw, I want to serve God. I want to glorify God. Okay, so what did he do? Well, he learned the scriptures. He learned to be faithful. He learned to love others and to choose God's way instead of any other way right? He learned to say, okay, maybe I want to be like Paul one day. He's going all over the world. He's working miracles. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to serve in Derby. I'm going to serve in Lystra. And I'm not going to sit around and say, well, when an important city comes along, then I'll start serving God. When a fun thing comes along, then I'll start serving God. He just started serving God, started glorifying God with his life. So here's Timothy, rookie of the year, ready to go. Paul's ready to draft him. Number one pick, there is just one thing. Verse three, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew his father was a Greek. I remember when I was lifeguarding uh, years ago, There's another guy about my age who was trying to get in the Coast Guard. Really strong swimmer. Uh, if anybody was going to be in the Coast Guard, he was a good candidate for it. And he had told me, you know, I, I I'm going to take him at his word. He had told me he had gone to meet with his recruiter. He was getting right to the point where it was time to go, and then he showed up on a Monday. And I said, Aren't you supposed to be in the Coast Guard now? And he said, Well, yeah, I went to this meeting, and they, you know, I had an ingrown toenail, and they said, Yeah, you can't come in. You can't come in until that's cleared up. And you folks with a military background know that there's a long list of conditions that can keep you out of the service. I was perusing one on military.com, just the different conditions that can sort of disqualify you from entering in. Some of them are permanent disqualification, some of them are not, right? Now, let me read verse four, and then we're gonna circle back to what's going on here. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So on first glance, if we're paying attention, it makes no sense that verse 3 is right next to verse 4. We're going to go tell people that circumcision is not a requirement, but before we do that, you have to be circumcised or you, otherwise you can't come. What in the world is going on? The issue isn't terribly complicated. We're given Paul's just justification there in verse 3. It tells us why he, he did it. In the immediate region, Timothy's dad was a well-known figure. When Paul and Silas and Timothy went into synagogues in those places, it would be a big old ingrown toenail to have an uncircumcised member of the team. A lot of the Jews in those cities wouldn't even be interested in hearing their message because they were traveling with this guy, right? So in order to remove that potential improbable barrier, Paul said, why don't we just bypass this thing? Why don't we just take care of this once and for all? And frankly, All Paul did was face obstacles all the time in his ministry, day in and day out. And so if he's like, oh, I'm able to get rid of an obstacle to my ministry, let's take care of that. Let's take care of it right now. I'm sure he was glad to do so. While the reasoning isn't complicated, it does raise a lot of implications for us. Now, it's easy for me to think, I'm so glad I'm not Timothy. I'm not half Jewish, right? I'm not Timothy, I'm Titus. I'm Titus, another guy, Paul, you know, pulled into his ministry. Paul would later explain in the letter to the Galatians that Titus, who was a full-blown Gentile, he wasn't going to be compelled to be circumcised. He said, of course, I'm not going to do that. But what about this Timothy thing? What can it teach us? Because listen, I was thinking about this, and it's easy for me to think, well, I'm not half Jewish. I don't have to go and deal with Jews, so this isn't a big thing to me. But if it was me, if I was in that situation, I think I would have just said, well, why don't I just meet up with you when we get to a city where they don't know my dad? How about that? (laughs) I mean, it's still the first century. And, you know, we don't know who his dad was. But it seems clear that it's not like his dad was Caesar Nero. It wasn't like his dad was some major governor or things like that. I mean, he was known in some of the towns around for some reason or another. But this team was going to end up in Philippi, Thessalonica. They're going to Macedonia. They're going into the European continent. No one knew Timothy there. No one knew Timothy's dad's there. And after all, it wasn't their business if he was circumcised or not, right? And, it, and wouldn't it be Paul telling Timothy of all people in a few years, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. So what gives? You know, all those things are true. And Paul would never say that Timothy or anyone else would have to be circumcised or follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. That's not what we're talking about. The Bible could not be clearer. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. No works, no merit, no rituals, no payments can be made for you to purchase yourself a ticket into heaven or into God's good graces. Grace alone through faith alone. Paul's decision to have Timothy circumcised wasn't about salvation, it was all about mission. Because you see, Paul would do whatever was necessary to remove obstacles to delivering people the gospel, even if it was inconvenient or painful or in some cases downright dangerous. Paul was willing to do that. Whatever was necessary to accomplish the mission. And it wasn't that Paul just forced this on others. We know what kind of man he was. He himself lived by this code. He would later explain, listen, when I'm with Jews, I live like a Jew to bring Jews to Jesus Christ. Even though I'm not subject to the law, he said, I live under it when I'm around the Jews so I can bring them to Jesus Christ. We come to that Christian phrase that most of us have heard before, where Paul says, I'm all things to all men. But when we think about that, we have to realize the inconvenience of that the difficulty of that, the self-sacrifice of that, where Paul says, yeah, all things to all men sometimes mean you got to go get circumcised. Otherwise, we're not even going to be able to talk to these people. And guess what? We're, we want to talk to these people. We got to send the gospel to these people. And if they're going to stop us at the door based off of this rite and ritual, and here's their thinking, you're half Jewish and so, okay, I see where they're coming from. We want to get them out of religious Judaism and into born-again Christianity, but we're going to do this. I know most of you here this evening to be kind, decent people. When you're driving in your car, maybe headed somewhere important, maybe not important, but somewhere you just want to go to, somewhere important to you, but an ambulance comes up behind you with its lights and sirens on, what do you do? You pull over because you're not a bad person, (laughs) You pull over, you get out of the way and you set yourself aside and you put yourself on hold. Why? Well, because there's lives that need saving. Someone's probably dying in the back of that ambulance. And I don't want to stand in the way of the ambulance. We got to get that person to the emergency room, to the hospital. We got to get them to the surgeon, get them there as fast as they can, as easy as they can. Yeah, everybody stop obeying the traffic, the the lights. Just everybody stops. It doesn't matter if you have a green light or I have a green light, we all stop because somebody's house is on fire and the fire truck's coming through because someone's coding and they need an ambulance to save their life. We understand all of that. You know what's sad? Some departments for many years now are reporting more and more incidents where people are not pulling over for emergency vehicles. I see it even here around Hanford. You know, or it's the super last minute pullover, right? Uh, like, a fine, when they're like, <laughs> when they're bump drafting you, you know, fine, I'll pull over, right? And, and, but we understand the idea. On a physical level, someone's in trouble. And even if you were headed to a doctor's appointment, or even if you were headed to an important imp- appointment, or if, even if you're headed somewhere, you're headed on vacation, of course we all think, well, we have to pull over because someone's going to die if we don't pull over. I'll set myself aside. I will sideline my wishes, my desires, my right of way so that this person can maybe be saved. We understand the need. We're potentially talking about life and death. So we understand that compassion trumps convenience, right? And when we're talking about God's rescue plan, we are expected to lay down our own lives, to step down from our own comfort or convenience or rights the way Christ did as we try to save people who are headed toward an eternity in hell. Timothy had a lot of great spiritual skills. He was set up to be a great pastor and teacher and leader in the early church. But all of those skills wouldn't have mattered at all if he held on to his own comfort, his own convenience, if he refused to put himself on the altar of the Lord's glory, if he said, hey, I don't need to be circumcised. If they don't want to hear from me, it's not my problem. Because you know who I am. I'm Timothy. And people are going to fill the auditoriums to hear me talk. Listen to how all of these people already talk about how great I am, how important I am, what a great man of God I am. If there's some Jews out there that are going to be hung up on this issue, who cares? I'm selling tickets over here to a different meeting. Timothy didn't do anything like that. He was like, you know, he was like Abraham's only son, Isaac. He says, I'll carry the wood. I'll lay myself on the altar. I'll wait and see what God wants to do. What a beautiful thing. In Paul's two letters to him, which we have in the New Testament, the apostle talks a lot about avoiding meaningless arguments and debates. He keeps coming back to this theme as he encourages Timothy and instructs Timothy. He says, hey, listen, 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 avoid meaningless arguments. Don't get into them. Don't fall into them. Get past those endless bickerings and into something deeper. God wants you into something deeper. And here's how you can avoid those things. Once Timothy was a pastor, Paul would say to him, Timothy, you are called to serve God. You're called to do the work of an evangelist. And I want you to set an example for others. An example in what? Well, many things, but some that connect all the way back to this first choice in Acts 16 are this. He would tell him, I want you to endure all things for the sake of the gospel. He says, endure all things for the elect that, some, that they may obtain salvation. Paul tells him to pursue gentleness with all people, to pursue gentleness in his conduct, to not quarrel, which the servant of the Lord must not do, Paul says, but instead to fight the good fight. And he says, quote, compete according to the rules. If you play some sort of sport, some sort of game, some rules are just weird, right? There's just strange rules in certain sports. I always love the infield fly rule. That's a great one. We need to have this rule or all of baseball just crumbles apart. Infield fly rule, right? Or three in the key. How many seconds can you have three in the key? I don't know. Somebody knows. Come on, basketball people. I know basketball doesn't exist anymore, but back in the days before COVID, when we had basketball, you, you, certain people could only be a certain. So there's, you, in whatever game you're playing, whatever contest you have to compete according to the rules. And when people cheat or when people break, we say, that's gross. You shouldn't have done that. You're either disqualified or you're going to have an asterisk by your name for the rest of your life. And so Paul was using an analogy to Timothy. He says, hey, look, you're called to go out and represent Christ to people. Go do the work of the evangelist. He didn't necessarily say he's gifted to be an evangelist. He said, go do the work of an evangelist. Go. It's a great commission. Go into the world to make disciples. Go do the work of the evangelist. And as you're doing that, you need to pursue gentleness with all people. And you need to play according to the rules. And in this case, here at the beginning, Paul's saying, look, the rule, I didn't make the rules, Paul says, but this is gonna be a rule. You're not even gonna be on, allowed on the court with these people in this region, in these synagogues, unless we take care of this. No, it's not their business. No, it has nothing to do with your salvation. No, it's it's kind of a weird thing that they're going to be asking you about, but they are going to be asking you about it. And rather than fight about it, why don't we just lay ourselves down on God's altar, allow the Lord to trim that away, and then clear a path for that spiritual ambulance to get through. Here in our text... Paul saw something in Timothy. Obviously, he said, yeah, I want to bring this guy. We're going, on a, <laughs> we're going on a maybe suicide mission. Let's bring this guy with us. I don't think Paul thought it was a suicide mission, but he might die on it. But he said, let's bring this guy with us. This is the kind of guy we need with us when I'm being stoned to death and beaten to death and torn limb from limb and people are trying to kill me. Well, let's bring this kid with us. That would be great. He saw his potential. He saw the calling God had placed on his life. He saw that he was a faithful servant. He wanted to glorify the Lord. He imagined all the things the Lord might do through him, great things. But there was this thing that might slow him down or hold him back from full effectiveness, something that might keep him from moving about freely on the field. In the first Cars movie, the best one, obviously, in the first Cars movie... Mr. The King comes up to Lightning McQueen after their first race and he says, you got more talent in one lug nut than a lot of cars has got in their whole body. And Lightning McQueen says, thank you. And he says, but you're stupid. Great moment. And he tries to tell Lightning McQueen that he needs to learn humility and that he needs to learn to be a team player. And of course, unfortunately, Lightning has to learn the hard way and that's where the next 90 minutes of the movie come in. We're glad Lightning has to learn the hard way because we meet all those adorable characters and we see his transformation. Now, Timothy didn't have to learn the hard way. So he had all of this skill, he had all of the references, all of the competence, all of the love for the work. He had all of this built into him. And then Paul said to him, "I want you to obey in this issue it has nothing to do with your salvation. But I want you to do this for Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do it?" It's going to be inconvenient, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be on some level embarrassing. It's going to require self-sacrifice and Timothy didn't flinch. He didn't flinch when Paul was stoned to death right in front of him as a boy. He didn't flinch now. He said, yeah, let's do it. He was ready to walk the talk. He lived obedience, didn't just talk about it. Even when obedience was inconvenient or painful, there was no way he was going to hold on to some liberty if it would be a barrier between their message and the loss. Now, how might this example translate to us in a real world sense? We too are called to do the work of an evangelist. Maybe we're not gifted. Maybe you and I aren't gifted to be evangelists. Some of you here tonight are, but the rest of us are still called to do the work of an evangelist. We too are lucky enough to have been drafted to be a part of God's eternal work. Circumcision isn't an issue in our time or culture. That's not going to come up, but it is still our duty to concern ourselves with the fate of the lost. And it's our business to clear the way so that help can arrive through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be like our Lord who stepped down from heaven into the backwoods ruin of earth and live a life of radical, loving compassion so that people could be saved from their sins. That's the deal. That's the job. We can take a cue from Timothy and this strange start to his mission's work and find ways to avoid meaningless arguments with those we're trying to minister to. It certainly means not starting them, but it also might mean cutting something away that might be an easily removed obstacle in our mission. We talked a little bit about this in our study in Psalms uh, this past Sunday, talking about the mass that maybe we're tying ourselves to. And, and that thing that we think is important to us, and this will, I've got to hold on to this thing. And maybe the Lord, and by the, maybe God, the Holy Spirit tonight wants to talk to us about cutting something away, burning something off on the altar of God that we might decrease so that God can increase. For example, I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe that Facebook post needs to be deleted. Maybe that article of clothing that's meant to be inflammatory isn't the best attire for preaching a savior of compassion and grace. I don't know. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. Men like Paul and Timothy show us that this Christian life is real and it's a personal thing. It's meant to be thoughtful and active, not just outwardly active, going through motions, but inwardly as well as God works and operates on our hearts. If we follow Timothy through the New Testament, we find that he was often the guy sent to tackle the difficult assignments. At one point, he was sent to Pastor Corinth, a church with a lot of problems. It seems he was also sent to minister for a time to the church at Ephesus, maybe for many years, a difficult city, a difficult ministry. He started off with a good reputation, a fine heritage, impressive references, and those were all good things to have. But when we follow him, It's humility and obedience and being willing to die to self that makes a person useful to God in hard situations. It's that kind of Christianity that results in a healthy church. And Dr. Luke would agree. Look at verse 5 as we close. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Why? Well, because of the Holy Spirit, of course. But it was the Holy Spirit working through people, not just Timothy and Paul and Silas, but people like them, who took their Christianity seriously and who believed that it was their duty and privilege to obey and be a part of the rescue effort here on the earth. And oftentimes that meant pulling over to the side so that the ambulance could get through, laying down the rights, laying down the right-of-way, laying down that green light so that others might be saved, laying down conveniences so that the gospel might have a little less resistance in the ears of the people who didn't even know they needed to be saved from their sins. This life of grace and compassion, truth and purpose, it was winsome to people because it spoke volumes of Christ's love and his ability to save. And that's the mission we're on. That's the message that we're preaching. That's the savior that we're presenting to people. And we want to do so following in the footsteps of these wonderful examples of faithful, obedient people who are willing to put God first to decrease in their own lives so that Jesus Christ could be magnified Uh, through their personal lives and through their public lives.